I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. And as we approach the final week before the presidential election, I thought it would be good for us to ask this question. Do you wish that just for a few moments, everyone would step back from all of the accusations, arguments, and debates and sit down with one another and truly seek understanding? You'd think, well, that would be political utopia. I don't know if it would be political utopia, but it might fulfill the desire of the heart of Jesus that he expressed in his prayer recorded in John 17 that we would be one. It seems so far from being realistic, an expectation that could ever come true that we could be one in such a polarized environment. But that is why we are here at the Love First podcast. We're here to catalyze courageous conversations that help us revolutionize the way we love. And we're in a series on friendship, the gospel, and politics. And tonight, we are going to dive in to one of the most divisive issues at all of all and see if we can't find a way to live into Jesus' desire that we would be one. If this is your first time in the Love First podcast, thank you for joining us. If you are returning, thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. And let's get started. So, are you pro-life or are you pro-choice? That that might be an easy answer for you. In fact, it might be an answer that you have advocated for, lobbied for, voted for, given money to. You might have been very outspoken about your answer. You might say a loud yes to either one of those or a loud no. To either one of those. You may have stood across from someone at a picket line or a protest, one of you on one side and one of our listeners on the other, both of you saying a great big loud yes to your position and no to the position on the other side. You see, this is one of the most polarizing issues of our election cycle, and it has been one of the most polarizing issues for the last dozen years or so. Some people would say, well, it was polarizing way before that, way back into the 70s. Well, you can guess by the color of my hair and what year I graduated from high school that I might remember that long and arduous discussion. I remember Roe v. Wade. I remember when that Supreme Court case was decided. I was actually in the eighth grade when it was decided. And it was all of the talk and all of the news. And people were fiercely divided about that issue, just like people are fiercely polarized today. At the heart of the issue is how we conceive life. So why wouldn't it be? such an important issue. For some people, they can't imagine that anyone could be anything other than pro-life. And then some people who are pro-choice would say, 
But you do understand, I'm pro-life, just not politically the way you define it. I remember seeing a protest picture where two protesters were standing side by side, and one of them was advocating for the, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, and the other one held a sign up that said, love them both, and they were literally standing side by side. I'm not sure in one podcast we would actually solve such a complicated issue. You say, well, it's not complicated. Well, it turns out that for voters, it is complicated. As I was doing the research for this podcast, I decided that I would go to two of the larger uh, polling institutes, Pew Research and Gallup uh, Research, right? And along with that, some other lesser known, but nonetheless national and international research projects. And what I found was interesting. When people do surveys, anonymous self-reporting surveys, there's always a place for error in any of these surveys. In all research, the validation of research always includes the fact that in self-reporting, there's also always, excuse me, some margin of error. But when you have huge samples that are done across vast population, you at minimum have some signposts some mile markers as people are kind of indicating what they do or do not believe when in the privacy of their own thoughts and the confidentiality of their own survey, they can share what they think. So here's a couple of things that were interesting. First of all, in Pew Research on U.S. politics and policy, they asked in their research project, what were the most important issues in the 2020 election? People were asked to rank them, and then they reported on the percentage of voters that said it is very important in this election. Now, this might surprise you, but as intense and as intensely personal are the convictions about abortion it ranked quite a ways down on the list of issues. This won't surprise you, but here are the ways that people for 2020 articulated percentage-wise what was most important to the voting public. Economy, healthcare, Supreme Court appointments, the coronavirus outbreak, violent crime, foreign policy, gun policy, race and ethnic inequality, immigration, economic inequality, climate change, and abortion. Now, if you read that list like me, you might think to yourself, wait a second. I think that the Supreme Court appointments might have figured into the priority around the question of abortion. I would agree with you. But I think what this points out is when people are thinking about politics and when people are thinking about what's important to them, what we have to understand is, as we addressed in the last two podcasts, we are simply complex. That much of what concerns us faces intersectionality or a sense of interlocking with all of the other things that concern us. 
The research is intense. I read the 75-page report from one of the polling institutes and the 69-page report from another one of the polling institutes as they walk through several crucial key important issues in regard to the election. Now, what was fascinating to me about this is Gallup published a report and asked this question. What about abortion trends by party identification? And one of the things they noted was that between the two parties, neither the, the respondents from neither party favored uh, more abortion. All of them favored less. And this feeds into a fascinating longitudinal study that most people are familiar with. The abortion rate rose from 1973. Of course, it was researched more, tracked more, so that might be part of the uptick immediately in the statistics, all the way up through the 80s. And depending on which research you follow, some would suggest that it peaked somewhere around 1990. But what uh, all statistics demonstrate is that it has been reducing since that time through the efforts on multiple fronts all the way down to where it's in the lowest level since 1973. One of these studies is a five-year, 45-year study, and one of them is a 26-year study. So longitudinally, what they demonstrate is whatever is happening it's lowering the rate of abortion. Now, some would suggest, well, we should attribute that to one party over another. Like maybe when this party is in power, that is what makes the difference. Or when this party is in power, that is what makes the difference. But what's fascinating is, is that that doesn't seem to be the dividing factor. I decided that I would read some polling statistics from some uh, uh, polling uh, uh, institutes that work very closely with uh, pro-choice and those that work very closely with pro-life. And what both of them, true to the numbers, have to report is that both parties have made a difference in one way or another. Another suggestion is, is that maybe actually the difference is being made at more of a local level. Several of these polling institutes suggest that since reporting is primarily state by state, then maybe it's the legislation in various states, or maybe it's the public school education in various states, or efforts by various uh, a nonprofit and governmental institutions that are helping with um, uh, all of the concerns that would surround lowering abortion rates. But here's something I found fascinating. So Gallup did a poll that asked this question. What are the trends in views on legality of abortion by party identification? They show three different graphs for each party affiliation. The first is that abortion would be legal under any circumstance. The second, that it would be legal only under certain circumstances. The third, that it would be illegal in all circumstances. 
Now, how many of you have kind of are, have been familiarizing yourself with kind of those three possibilities? That there are some who would suggest that there is no circumstance of any kind where abortion should be legal under any circumstance. That would mean that even if the pregnancy resulted as a result of a violent crime, it should still be illegal. If it threatens the mother's life, it would still be illegal. So that's what that category means. Illegal always. On the other end, it is legal under any circumstances where there would be no legal restrictions on abortion and that all of those decisions would be left fundamentally to the individual or the family structure and that the government would have no part in it at all. Now, I think that you could hear in that last description some complexity because some people might say, well, the reason I would vote that way is I think the whole decision should be left up to the individual or the family structure as a way of protecting the sovereign rights of a person over their own body. Some would say, well, okay, I still agree with that, but that's because I don't think the government should have any participation in legislation that has to do with freedom over the human body of any kind under any circumstances, and that I really believe that the government has no business in doing anything that legislates morals. So you can see that people might arrive at a similar conclusion, but from different angles. So then they asked, well, how do these trends play out among Republicans? How do they play out among political independents? And how do they play out among Democrats? And they lay these three side by side. Now, of course, they reveal differences. Certainly they do, because our party affiliations represent our beliefs and convictions. If you are a thoughtful voter, a thoughtful participant in politics, you certainly have convictions and they play out in your decisions. So we would not expect that there would be some surprise. Whoa, everybody's the same. Underneath, everyone's holding hands and singing kumbaya. No, that is not the truth, and the numbers support that. But here's something else the numbers support, and that is that in all three party affiliations, Democrat, independent and Republican, they don't agree with themselves. That it isn't one conviction fits the entire party. And this has been tracked over the course, this particular study, of 45 years. Those who say that down underneath in the privacy of their own thoughts, in the confidentiality of their own survey, one of the most interesting findings is that among all three parties, perhaps the most consistent thing they have in common is that they all see this issue as complex. 
complex enough that the highest percentage in all three parties is that it would be legal under certain circumstances. And what you might find surprising is the percentage in all three parties that hold to that position is very similar. You might also be surprised to discover that those who believe that it should be legal under any circumstances in all three parties is significantly lower than those who believe it's a complex enough question that it deserves the attention and the nuance of circumstances. When I read the, the results of this 45-year study that reveals the personal thoughts and the confidential responses, I thought to myself, this doesn't mean we're all the same. But what it does do is it sort of peels back the veil of the myth that if you have a neighbor that is voting differently than you, that you are hopelessly separated and there is no chance for any goodwill to ignite a courageous conversation so that you would revolutionize the way you love each other. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what about other studies? Well, that's just, that's just one. Well, you do realize that's one massive 45-year longitudinal study. That's not a study that you would quickly dismiss. But Pew did their own study. And one of the things that they noted in 2020, published June 18th, is that in all three parties... 30% of the Republicans, Independents, and Democrats, approximately 30%, a third and a third and a third, all said they did not agree with their party platform in regard to this issue. So that might mean that you have a friend who shares the same party affiliation but doesn't see the issue exactly the same as you. Some of us might say, well, no, no, not me. Nope. All of my friends think exactly the same as me. Well, when they're with you, they might feel that the relationship is fragile. Fragile enough that if they actually shared any nuance at all, then it would demonstrate that there wasn't a friendship at all. Others of you would say, well, of course, I know my friends and I don't all agree. We have conversations about this. We dig into the meaning. We try to understand each other and we try to understand nuance. I got into a strange conversation with someone. They said to me, you do realize that I'm pro-life and I'm pro-choice. And I thought, how? How can you be? And it took me a minute to understand 
that they weren't talking about two political positions. They weren't talking about two political party positions. They were talking about how they were trying to understand humanity and the complexity of situations. One of them said, we were faced with this question in a, in a college uh, class. We were faced with this ethical question. If the mother's life was threatened by the continuation of the pregnancy, do you believe that abortion should be an option? Some people in the class said yes. Some people in the class said no. Some said that the woman should be given a choice since it's, but it's life and death for her. Someone else said, how can you give the woman the choice when the child had no choice to be conceived nor no choice in the decision as to whether to live or to die? Someone else said, it sounds to me like you are pro-choice, giving the woman a choice. And someone else says, that sounds like pro-life. You're letting her decide what to do with her life. He said, one of the strange things was, is I went into that college ethics class thinking I had it all figured out. And a discussion, a calm, thoughtful discussion made me realize not only did I not have it all figured out, I hadn't even entertained all the questions. Well, I've done one or two things so far in this discussion. I've either helped articulate some of the things that are on your mind, or I might have just made you upset. It wasn't my desire to make you upset. It wasn't my desire to come across as if this question isn't highly charged with deep convictions, but I chose it for that reason. Because if we believe that Jesus' vision for uniting the world is worth pursuing, we are going to have to consider how we would actually fulfill his vision in real-world circumstances. So now, let's go to Scripture. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, we have a list of Jesus' disciples. And I thought this was fascinating, and I want to take a moment and just share this with you. There are a lot of names in the Bible. Have you noticed that? According to the Biographical Bible, there are 3,237 Bible characters named in Scripture. There are 1,443 characters who do not have unique names. Did you know that there are at least four famous people named Benjamin, 14 Josephs, and 31 Zecharias. That's a lot. The New International Encyclopedia of the Bible, of Bible Characters, published by Zondervan, suggests that there are approximately 40 major characters in the biblical narrative, but I'm always suspect of picking numbers like 40. I think we're kind of attached to that one. In the Bible for Dummies, they reduce that list to 11. The Easy Bible publishes their list of the 25 most important people in the Bible ranked on their influence and how recognizable are they to people familiar with the Bible. 
It is interesting because I read their list of 25. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Solomon don't make the cut. Using big data, number crunching methods, Logos Bible software created their list of the top 50 people in the Bible, the top 50 most important people in the Bible, and the top 50 women of the Bible in their own list. I have a question for you. Why the names? Do we really need names to do what the Bible needs to do? Do we need family history, including sordid details? Do we need stories of valiant victory or epic failure? Do we need biographies, protagonists, antagonists, wise and foolish decisions and deeds? I mean, seriously, for the Bible to do what the Bible needed to do, do we need all of this? Do we really need to know about Joseph and Mary? Do we need to know about his namesake and the coat of many colors and his deceptive siblings? Do we need to know that Jael drove a pentag through Sisera's head? Do we need to know the details about Ehud could not retrieve his sword out of Eglon's gut? Do we need to know that arrogant Herod was eaten by worms? I mean, this is all in the Bible. And you might think to yourself, I, I don't think we need to know any of that. And yet, the biographical Bible makes an important point. The purpose of including humans is because they are humans, and so are we. If the Bible isn't full of Bible characters, the Bible is full of humans, people, navigating life just like us. When Jesus prayed his prayer of oneness in John 17, the Bible tells us that his disciples were with him. The only one not there was Judas, so let me read the list of those who were there. This is in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 2. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I want you to notice something, that with some of the names, there are descriptions, such as he names Simon, and he lets us know, of course, you know, that this guy's related to Andrew. And, and in another case, it's Simon, whose name is also called uh, Peter or Cephas. So there's a little bit of, of uh, added detail to their life. We learn about Thomas, that Thomas is a twin, right? So these details are shared with their names, that some of them are related. But I want you to know that two of them, it is noted a, an occupation, and an ideology. Matthew, just called in the previous chapter, we also know him as Levi. Matthew is a tax collector. Quite often, when these names are listed, so is his occupation. But did you notice the ideology? Simon 
the zealot. Now, when you look at Acts chapter 1 and you see this list shared again, the names are there again, and Simon is called the zealot again. So I want you to think with me about Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. If Matthew was called by Jesus to follow him, to become one of his followers, to join the rabbi in the school of life, to do life with Jesus, you know, to eat together, to to walk by the road together, to go to teaching circumstances together, to go to worship together, to go down and bathe uh, in the river, all of these things that they would literally do life together. If Matthew walked into that small gathering, this isn't a giant crowd. This is a small gathering of a dozen people. If Matthew walked in and scanned the group and spotted the telltale signs of a zealot, Matthew might have thought, he was walking into a trap. As best as historians can understand, reading historians of the day, the zealots were an ideology that was launched in 6 AD. This grew to full fruition later in the first century, and some of the zealots were the great defenders, the heroic defenders against the Romans at Masada. The zealots were an ideology that was emerging during the young life of Simon the Zealot. When he came of age, he still predated the full maturity of the movement. But the seeds were in place, so let me identify Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is the weaponized extremist in every way. They were known for a specific kind of fighting weapon. Close up, fierce, body to body, breath to breath, sweat to sweat, blood to blood. The zealots made an ideological decision that it would be better for their nation to die and them with it than to continue to be soiled, to continue to be integrated with pagan thought. Now, I want you to hear specifically four specific characteristics of the zealot ideology. Number one, they opposed the payment of taxes to a pagan emperor they believed because they believed their allegiance was due to God alone. Now, don't get too far ahead of me. But one of the legs under their table of ideology, one of the pillars that held up the temple of their ideology, was that they opposed paying taxes to a foreign emperor because they believed their allegiance was due only to God. Number two, they were fiercely loyal to Jewish tradition. Number three, they endorsed the use of violence as long as it accomplished a good end. And guess who decided what the good end was? Them. And number four, they were opposed to the influence of Greek pagan culture in the Holy Land. 
They wanted their traditions and their customs to be unmixed from any outside influence. That's the ideology of Simon the Zealot. And it was a weaponized ideology. But what about Matthew? Well, see, in a different way, Matthew is also weaponized. You see, Matthew, the tax collector, is collecting taxes with the backing of the power of the occupying armies of Rome. Everyone knows this isn't Matthew walking through town collecting taxes. This is Matthew representing the occupying power walking through town collecting taxes. Now, I want you to imagine these two guys weaponized in their own way. And Matthew sees Simon, and this looks like a trap. Simon sees Matthew. And this is very important. If you don't get anything else, get this. He doesn't just see what's wrong with Matthew. He sees a symbol of what's wrong with his nation. Matthew is representative of everything that's gone wrong and every bad political decision that's been made, every bad political compromise that's been made. Simon isn't just mad at Matthew. He is mad at his nation. How extreme is Simon's ideology? If we, if we have to burn it down to clean it up, We'll do it. How extreme is Matthew's ideology? If the only way to survive in this big old world is to figure out how to get in bed with the Romans, I just as well get paid for it. Can you not see that this looks impossible? Do you understand now why I asked the question about names and all the names in the Bible and why they matter? You see, these names, these two men, Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot, the Holy Spirit is inspiring the Word of God, not wasting ink making sure that if the names are there, they're there for a reason. You do realize, now step back with me, you do realize that if the Holy Spirit had decided to just say, a guy named Matthew, we wouldn't know he's a tax collector unless the Holy Spirit decided to tell us that. To include the description of his calling that the man is a tax collector, we'd be none the wiser. You do realize we know almost nothing about several of the apostles. There's no other mention in the Bible other than their names. So if they were left to complete obscurity, the Holy Spirit knows how to do that. But Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot were not intended for complete obscurity. They were intended as encouragement and instruction for us upon whom the end of the ages have come. They're there for us to learn from. So Jesus calls these two men, Matthew and Simon. One of them looks across the room and sees a trap. The other one looks across the room 
and sees the very validation of why his ideology is necessary. And Jesus says, I see in the two of you, two people, that I want to join me in healing the world, cleansing the world of the suspicion and the hatred and the arrogance and the violence that divides people. And I want the two of you to participate, not just in healing your relationship with each other, but healing every generation until in the great consummation of all things, the world will pour into the kingdom of God and see every nation, every tribe, every tongue as one. Is this possible? Is Jesus' prayer a driving value in the life of our local churches, our preaching, our conversations, our concerns? Are we, in some way or another, abdicating the fight? Are we just saying, you know what? Politics are stronger than Jesus. Voting is more important than conversations with our sisters and brothers in Christ. Standing for what I believe is more important than following Jesus on the way to oneness. I know we're not saying that. I know that's not our intent. But that's what happens when brothers and sisters in Christ weaponize their ideologies and turn themselves into enemy combatants who cannot pursue the oneness of Jesus Christ because we are too focused on our positions in ideological combat. This can't be what God is after. So where do we go from here? Well, in this conversation about friendship, I would like to read an excerpt from Mark Vernon's epic study of the meaning of friendship. There is a word for all that is going on around us as we are shaped by the environments we are in while we try to forge them. We've already seen that this plays out in our relationships in the workplace, our culture, and our society online. There's a word for all of this, politics. Aristotle knew that friendship played a key part in any political philosophy he saw that the vibrancy of a city and the feel of a place grew out of the vitality shared by its inhabitants, the care that individuals, families, and households have for each other. He knew that if you could get those microcosms of friendship right, then friendship might come to characterize the feel of the city as a whole, the mood or attitude toward others that once learned at the hearth spreads out like the warmth of embers. Conversely, a thriving city is a good place to live because the energy it generates itself nurtures the friendship of those who live in it. In short, our personal friendships cannot be divorced from the politics of friendships, the way we live together.
What would it take for us to see our families, our churches, our workplaces, our communities as microcosms of Christian friendship, where the oneness, the desire of Jesus for oneness permeates and is prioritized and becomes pervasive so that in all of our interactions with one another, the value of oneness leads that we truly love first. Then a discussion as powerful, as wrenching, as convicting as abortion doesn't end up separating families, churches, and friends, but rather following Jesus, it invites us deep into each other's humanness. It allows us to help with virtue and goodwill, explore these powerful, vital, life and death issues. And as we explore them, rather than falling to the side, facing each other like combatants, we lean in close and we look someone square in the heart and say, I want to know you better. I want you to tell me more. I want you to understand why that's important. And just perhaps we might discover that both of us really want life and we both have ways of contributing to life and that together as one, we can truly be people who support the flourishing of all. I know the issues are complex. But if we can't figure out how to love first, the issues won't get less complex. They will become more complex. And in the middle of all of that unresolved complexity, oneness that Jesus desired will certainly be a casualty. As we think about approaching this election, My number one challenge for you in this podcast is to think through the election and beyond. And what are you going to do to pursue the oneness that Jesus desires with people who are not like you? I want to thank you for joining the Love First podcast. My prayer is that we have helped to catalyze a courageous conversation that will revolutionize the way you love. And I would ask you to like, subscribe, and share, and we look forward to seeing you next time.